if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it up and turn with me to the book of Colossians. If you are visiting with us, then uh, you'll, be, you'll, you'll want to know that we've been working our way through the book of Colossians. Uh, we're now in, a, a, I don't know, fourth week maybe, something like that. Um, and Colossians chapter 1 is, uh, we'll be finishing Colossians chapter 1 and on our way into Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible or a mobile device where you can look these verses up on your phone or iPad or whatever, you can find this reading in the Pew Bible in front of you, page 954. 954 is where you can find that reading. And I will uh, just let you know if you... Uh, haven't been a part of our study and you would like to sort of catch up as it were on the study, you can go online where all of our resources are and you can find uh, those studies that we did together there. And we would encourage you to go there. Colossians chapter 1, our text for this morning will begin in verse 24 and go all the way through chapter 2, verse 5. That's our text for this morning. This week I was uh, having lunch with a friend of mine and um, and during conversation, we were just kind of talking about life, and I was asking about how his family is, and how his wife, and different things like that. And he was telling me that his wife, uh, the company that she works for, um, has just got purchased by another company. And so they're going through this sort of weird, wonky, sort of merger kind of thing. And so she's having to have these special meetings or interviews. And, and he, he was telling me of this conversation that he had with his wife, where she said, if they ask me what I'm passionate about, I don't know what I'll tell them. I don't know what I would tell them about what my passions are. And he said, oh, that's easy. He said to her, you're passionate about whatever's in front of you. Whatever challenge is there, whatever hill is there to climb, you will go climb it just because the hill exists. Just because it's there, that's you. She is, he said to me, she's just an achiever. She's just driven by achieving. He said, that's, that's easy. That, what I, would I don't think she agreed. I don't think he persuaded her, persuaded her but he tried it anyway. And I wonder if you would be able to know, to answer that question yourself. If someone says to you, this, what, are you what are you passionate about? What, what might that be? Or put another way, if someone said to you, you, or maybe you said to someone else, if you're going to get me, if you're going to understand me, who I am, you have to understand this. What would that be? Maybe it's pizza. I don't know. But what would, what would it be for you? That just so, if, if, if the people didn't understand this about you, they just wouldn't get you. You, just, you couldn't communicate. You could barely be in the same room. The Apostle Paul has been talking to the church in Colossae, and he's been teaching this particular church. And he's been telling them just in, this, in our last study about the absolute supremacy of Jesus Christ, that he is supreme over all things. And he's been teaching them these things. And because of what Jesus has done, they can be reconciled to God. Because of the work of Jesus, that, they, that these people now can be a part of the family of God. They can be a part of, of the, the church of God if they continue on in their faith, if they stand firm, if they continue to believe, if they continue to obey, he said. And then it's as if, almost as if Paul just kind of shifts gears. And in the verses that are in front of us this morning, he says, now to the church, I need you to know some things about me. If you're going to understand the rest of this letter that I'm writing to you, if you're going to understand what I'm trying to teach you, if you're going to understand what God is actually trying to say to you, then there's some foundational things that you need to understand about me, Paul says, if you're going to get me, if you're going to understand 
And this morning, I just wanted to outline for you a few foundational things that Paul reveals to the church in Corinth about who he is and the driving passions of his life. The driving passions of his life. Let's begin chapter 1. Let's begin in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been, that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which, Christ, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's just pause there. The first thing that Paul wants this church to understand about him is suffering. Is suffering. That's what he says. Now, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body. Paul is writing from jail, you'll remember. He's writing this letter. This is one of, the, one of the four letters that he wrote while he was in jail. And so he is, in one sense, suffering for them. He's suffering for the cause of Jesus Christ. He was in jail because he wouldn't stop teaching about Jesus. So he's put in jail, and he's writing them this letter. He's writing to the church. And Paul essentially says, I rejoice from jail in my sufferings for you. I'm suffering, but I'm not in despair. I'm suffering but I'm actually rejoicing, and it's for you. Now, someone in the church of Colossae, they've never met Paul. Paul's never met them. They've never met him. They could, say, they could rightly say, what do you mean you're suffering for me? I don't even know you. Interesting. But Paul says, no, I'm, I'm suffering because of, he says, I'm suffering for you. I'm suffering for the church of Jesus Christ. This isn't the only suffering. This is the current suffering that Paul has been a part of. But if you're familiar with Paul's letters, if you're familiar with Paul's journey with his life, then he's suffered quite a bit. In, in his letter, this, the second letter to the church in Corinth, in cha the, the 11th chapter, listen to what, I just want to give you a flavor for the suffering of Paul's journey of his life. Let me just read these verses for you. It's worthy for you to go uh, uh, this afternoon and read for yourself, but let me just give you a flavor for Paul's life. He says this, and are they servants of Christ? He says, I'm, I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with a rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. That's without a boat. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger with false believers. I have labored and toiled and often been without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches." That's the life of Paul. As he just kind of lists some of the sufferings that went on. He says, if you're going to get me, you need to understand the suffering. 
that I've been going through. Why did he go through the suffering? He says, because I fill up in my flesh what is lacking with regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. For I fill up, he says, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. There are some that would say what this verse is actually teaching is that Jesus' suffering was not enough. That Paul and the church had to suffer in order to fill up what was lacking in Jesus. Is that what Paul's teaching? No. It can't be. Did Go listen to last week's sermon. Go read the verses that are right. He says, in all things, Christ is supreme. In all of creation, in all things, Christ is supreme. It can't be that his work was insufficient. No. What is he actually trying to say? What, he's, what Paul is actually saying is that Jesus came. And Jesus lived and Jesus died. And in Jesus' ministry, there were people who hated Jesus. There were people who rejected Jesus. There were people who killed Jesus. Jesus rose again. Jesus ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet there are still people who hate the message of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ in the world. And Paul, as a, mission, as a messenger for Jesus, on behalf of Jesus, for the church, now is suffering because the very same afflictions because of the name of Christ. He says, I need you to know, if you're going to get me, that suffering is a part of the journey of those who take on the name of Jesus. That there is, from the time that Christ ascended until the time of Christ's return, there will be those in the world who oppose the message of Jesus Christ. So those who take on the name, those who take on the burden, those who also take on the joy and benefits of Christ will face suffering and persecution and difficulty and hardship because of Christ. And he says, and I'm rejoicing because I get to join in the afflictions of Christ, of who he is and all that he has done. I'm rejoicing in that. I take great joy because I'm doing what Jesus did. Because I'm furthering for his church. Yes, at great difficulty. Yes, with great pain. And yes, with great joy. What does this mean for you and me? means if you're a Christian here this morning, if you're a Jesus follower, if you take on the name of Christ, that there will be suffering in your life. It's not a news flash to you. If you've lived any amount of years, you know life hasn't been all holly and jolly and roses and rainbows, that there's real difficulties and real challenges that have been real in your faith journey. In the following Jesus... There will be suffering. To, be, to live a generous life like Jesus did means that you will have to deny yourself certain things in order to be one who gives of your resources, of your time. And it's a form of suffering. If we are to forgive like Jesus forgave, which we are, forgiveness is a form of suffering. Friends, if you know what it is to be deeply wounded, I mean wounded at the very core then you know to be able to say, I forgive you. I choose to not use that offense ever against you ever, ever again. You know the pain. You know the suffering, and it is real, and you're doing it for Jesus. It's suffering. Some of you, some of you, because you've chosen to live by a sexual ethic that the Bible teaches in honor for Christ, 
in, in expectation. You've kept yourself holy. You've kept yourself pure. And it's felt like suffering to you. And, and some of you continue on in singleness because you feel like the one who is actually the spouse that was somehow promised to you hasn't come. And it's, been suffer- it's felt like suffering to you. And it has, in real sense, been suffering to you because you found these lonely nights and these hard days. But you're doing it all in the name of Christ. Many of you have suffered great loss of a loved one, a spouse or a child or a parent. And you understand what it is to be able to say, it is suffering for me to believe that God is doing all things for our good and for his glory. And when I've lost the loved one, when there is an empty chair at my dinner table, it is suffering for me to believe, and yet for Christ's sake I believe. It is the journey of faith. Grief is a form of suffering. If we take seriously the Christ, that Christ's call for racial reconciliation, to be able to actually put down prejudices, and to be able to go across the cross racial lines in order to show the love of Jesus Christ, there's a form of suffering involved in this. If we are to follow Jesus, to care for the poor and the lonely and the lost and the left out, there is a form of suffering. Jesus suffered. Paul suffered. And those who take on the name of Jesus Christ who are his disciples will suffer. You say, well, that's a cheery thing to talk about this morning. But we're not alone in our suffering. Paul can rejoice because he's suffering for Jesus and he's suffering with Jesus. You see, those who are Christ, those who are his children, not only are we suffering, will we suffer for Jesus, but we do not suffer, we do not, we not endure on our own strength, but with the strength that Christ provides. I was reading an article this morning, and there's, Juliette Liu is her name, the writer of the author of the article. And she says this, the one who is seated on the throne, who out of his love for the world is making all things new, is precisely the one who is able to lead us in grief that things are not as they should be. We suffer in this world because one day Jesus will come back and make things right. But until that time, Jesus will lead us through. He doesn't leave you on your own. He doesn't say, buck up, camper, have at it. No, he says, I know it's hard. It was hard for me, but I will be with you, and I will take you to be where I am until he comes back and makes all things new. And so we recognize. Paul says, if you're going to get me, then you have to understand the suffering that comes with following Jesus, with discipleship. Paul says, there's another thing that you need to know about me, that I have a calling on my life that I have a calling on my life. Verse 25. I have become a servant by the commission of God, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says, I now, I want you to know I have a calling on my life or I have a commission that is from God. And that commission is to be able to present to you the word of God in all of its fullness. You see, he says, there was a mystery in in the scriptures. There was this one who was 
in, in the Old Testament, they were, they were prophesying that there was one who was going to come and this one who was going to be the Messiah and he was going to be the savior of all who would believe. And they were waiting and they were waiting for this mystery of who might this be. And he says, now the mystery has come. It has been disclosed to Gentiles and to the Jews. It has been disclosed to the whole world. This mystery has been revealed and it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That Christ has been, that Jesus, this Jesus is the Christ, and this Christ is in you, and this Christ is the hope of glory that is to come. He says, this is the mystery, and I have been called, I have a calling on my life, and that is to talk about this mystery who is Christ. And I want to let you know, he says, that if you're going to get me, you have to understand the calling that God has put on my life to be able to help you understand the word of God, and that Christ is in you, and Christ is your hope, and your hope is a hope of glory. This is what he says, this is the passion of my life, this is the calling of my life, that Jesus came God with us, that Jesus indwells his people, Christ in us, that Jesus will come again and will take us to be with him. The very spirit of Christ is at work in you and reminding us and pointing us to the glory that is to come. He says, this is the message of my life. This is the calling that God has put on my life. And if you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a disciple of his, then he says to you, this is the same calling that I've put on you. That your calling, the thing that God is calling you to is that you would show the word of God in all of his fullness. That's, what, that's your calling on your life. There's a priesthood of all believers in the scriptures. Talks, all of us have the same calling. It's not like there was a, there's a special calling. It's not, because I, it's not like I have a special calling in the sense because I'm up here on a stage in a microphone. That's different than what the calling is yours. All of us, if we're in Christ, all of us, if we're followers of him, have a responsibility and a calling on our life that we are to go show the word of God in all of its fullness. So what does that mean? That means if you go to Target or you go to U.S. Bank or you go to your cubicle or you go to wherever you go on, on a Monday morning, that you're to go take Christ with you. How is it that this Jesus Christ who is in you, the very hope of glory, makes you different than the someone in the cubicle next to you? How can you display that? How does it change the way you do your work? How does it change the way you interact with your neighbors? How does it change the way you watch your TV? How does it change the way you think you look on the internet? And the way that you respond to these things? It ought to. Because why? Because the calling on your life is the calling that was on Paul's life, which is to make known the fullness of the word of God. It is on yours, it is on mine. How in your retirement can you not be overcome by your own desires, but use your time wisely for kingdom purposes? How when you're coaching your kids' games on the sidelines, be doing so for the kingdom of God? How can you break down gender bias and, and, and racial bias in your workplace in order to show the love of Jesus Christ? How can you work towards these things? Because the calling on your life is the calling that is on Paul's life. Now, it's true, Paul was an apostle. You're not an apostle. But the calling is the same. There's a third thing that Paul says he wants these people to understand about him. Paul said there's a third thing that Colossians need to know. Not only is his suffering, not only is it his calling, but also it is his purpose. Verse 28. He is the one we proclaim, talk meaning Jesus. 
admonishing and teaching everyone with wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. He says, I have one purpose. I'm a one-trick pony, as it were. I've got one message. His name is Jesus. That's all I'm about. I want you to know. And I've got one purpose, that I may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's what he says. And I will give every single ounce of all of the energy that Jesus gives me for that one purpose. That is to proclaim the one name and that is to present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's my purpose. That I will give all, every ounce of all of my days, all of my breath, all of my life for that one thing, which is Jesus. He says, that's, that's what I'm here for. That's what I'm doing. That's clarity, isn't it? He will teach Jesus. He will work out the implications in life of Jesus. And he wants everyone to become mature in Jesus. And he will do so to his dying death, dying breath. He's the kind of guy, I imagine if you were to go visit him and, well, he wouldn't have been in the hospital. You went and visit him in jail and he was on his deathbed. He would be talking about Jesus and the glories of his rejoicing. This is the calling, the purpose of his life. And finally, I want you to see this. I want you to see the heart of Paul. The heart, the pastoral heart. Verse, or chapter two, verse one. I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they, may have, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent for, from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm you are in the faith. Do you, see, do you see Paul's pastoral heart there for these people? His great concern that they would be mature in him, but he says, I, I'm, I want you to know how, how I'm contending for you, how I'm fighting for you, because I so desperately want you to know I'm contending for you so that you may be encouraged in Jesus, that you may know the knowledge and the understanding, the joy of being in Christ. And so I'm working with all of my energy for you. And I tell you all of these things, so that you are not deceived. Because there are people who are trying to deceive you. And so you need to know these things. I want you to be mature, and I don't want you to be deceived. And though I'm absent from you, I'm with you. Though I'm not with you in body, I'm with you in spirit. And I'm praying for you, and I'm cheering you on as, as you go. You need to know this about me, he says. You need to hear my heart for you, says the Apostle Paul. The goal of the Apostle Paul's life was to present everyone mature in Christ so that they would not be deceived, so that they would continue on in Jesus. I wonder if I might be able to take a few moments and just examine and think a little bit about what it looks like for us to grow into maturity in our day and our age. If you'd allow me just a few moments 
to just think through what this might look like. Just a few observations, because I think we find ourselves in a place which is really unique, and I think the, the, the church of Jesus Christ has some really unique opportunities. These are not all original thoughts. I've been doing a, quite a, a wide bit of reading from authors like Carrie Newhoff and Ed Stetzer and Tim Keller and others. But we are... In our culture, we are now on the receiving end of messages from a post-truth culture. This is not new. This has happened really in its fledgling stages since the 70s. But we are now, but now, in the headlines of our news sources, all the way to the, to the president of the United States, we find ourselves now in a post-truth, post-fact culture. What are we to do in this place? because we've now entered in a, an alternate facts space. Where, where are we to go? How are we to engage? The rise and the influence of fake news and the rapid polarization of opinion across every platform has been staggering, at least it has been to me, and I think it might be to you as well. And so I can't say everything. There's much to be said, but I'd rather not just say nothing that we might be able to dialogue and think these things out together. So let me give you three observations about our current culture, as specifically as it relates to truth, because it's coming at us at 100 miles a minute every single day. First observation is this, that truth, the culture is telling us that truth is personal. Truth is personal. In our emerging culture, Truth is no longer subjective or objective, but rather it's personal. So it plays out like this. If you don't like something, great. Tell everyone it never happened. Explain that it doesn't exist. Just spin your own version of the story long enough until you've constructed your own personal universe of what's real and what's not real. Why face facts when you can deny it instead? This explains the rise of fake news sources and the shift in reporting that has happened as we speak because what's true on Fox News is not true on CNN and is not true on MSNBC or NBC, right? It's this, there is this false, this, these false facts, these alternate truths. If we don't like what one, any of them are saying, we just kind of, make up our own version of the story and start our own site or go to social media and write things in all caps and somehow it becomes viable. This is, this is troubling for people who base their message on truth. So there is this thing that, it, so the idea being that if, 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 I am, it, truth has become, it's not objective, there's not the truth that is outside of me, but I can, I can define my own truth. It is my own personal truth. And it's true for me, and it may or may not be true for you, but it's true for me, and I can just define what's true for me. What follows that is this. If I can define my own truth, what follows that is this, then I'm always right. Then I'm always right. If we are the ones who create our own truth, then there's no need to confess that we're wrong because we're the ones who are creating our own truth. We're the ones who are able to be the arbiters of truth. And the most extreme like, iteration of this is that I'm right and God is wrong. That there's no way for God to tell me that I'm right or wrong because I can define my own truth. 
And if truth is personal inside me, then I can be the one who defines it. It's truth that actually sets, sets, aside, sets up falsehood. It's right that actually helps us understand what is wrong. And when, whatever is, and when whatever is right is how I define it, then I'm always right. Then I become always right because I'm the one who can define my own truth. And even when things don't go great for us, it's never our fault. We can begin to just blame other people. We become the victims. We, you know, you just don't understand my truth. You, you just don't understand me. And so therefore, and this is the messages that are floating around. And this isn't from one side or the other. This is just our culture. I'm not, I'm not picking a side, you understand. This, this, is, this is just happening throughout our culture that we can define whatever our own personal truth is. And so therefore, I'm always right and I'm always the victim because people just don't understand me. And then thirdly is this, then you can't tell me that I'm wrong. That there's, a no, there's no accountability. If, as we, as we hear these things in public discourse, there's a lack of accountability because I'm right. What we say, well, this is my truth and I'm right and everyone else is wrong, so there. Okay. Um, because I have become the arbiter of truth, I'm not accountable to anyone, not to you, not to others, not even to God. If something doesn't go my way, I don't need to take responsibility, I can just blame other people, I can blame someone else, because, and then I can hold other people accountable, but nobody can hold me accountable because it's my personal truth and I'm right. And so therefore, there's a lack of accountability. And this is, the, this, this is the water in which we are swimming in. This is the air that we are breathing, okay? So I just want to just, there's lots more to be said on that. I just want to just give a few observations so that we can be uh, thinking these things out together. Well, what are we to do about this? Are we to, to uh, put our tail in between our legs in despair? I suggest not. I think we have great opportunity in these days as the church of Jesus Christ to be the church of Jesus Christ. The first is this. The first thing, here's some, some observations or some opportunities now, some opportunities for us. First is this, to hold on to what is true. To hold on to what is true. Anchor yourself to the truth and what Paul says is, I have one message and that is Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. To anchor ourselves in the one who is truth, who is outside of us, who, who gives us an, an accountability and an objectivity to the way in which we live our lives. We are to anchor ourselves, to tether ourselves into the objective truth. That truth is not, out, that truth is is, is, is outside of us. That lo truth and love doesn't just reside in us, but it's outside of us. We need to hold on to that. We need to resist the temptation to define our own reality, right? The temptation is that all of us now can just decide what is our own personal truth. No, we need to be those who say, no, there is a truth that is outside of us, and the truth is anchored in the one who is truth, who is Christ, and we allow him to be the one who is the, who, to whom we tether. Because otherwise, when the hardships of life come, then, then what are you tethered to? What, what, are, what, are the, 
what are we tethered to? If we're the ones who define all things, and if we're the God of our own little kingdoms, and the difficulties come, what, what are you tethered to? You're tethered to the objective truth that is outside of us, who is Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Hold on to what is true. Second is to be honest. Just be honest. You say, well, that's not revolutionary. I know. Be, on, be honest. Don't spin. Don't settle for alternate facts. Don't get caught up in the vortex of personal opinions, of whether yours or everyone else's. Make a commitment to be honest and to tell the truth and recognize that, look, I don't have it all together, that I'm not the arbiter of truth, that re the reality is not the way I want it to be, that, you, that, that I'm not the way that I want me to be, that the world is broken and we confess it and we address it. It is the Christian tradition of confession, which is naming things that are wrong, naming things that are broken. We name it about ourselves and about our culture because, and it's called confession. It's just naming what isn't right and just being honest about the fact that this, and so we continue to confess our sin. Because if we define what's true, we'll never do that. If, we, if, if we're never wrong because we can always change our truth. No, no, no. Because we are those who are tethered to what is true then we recognize when we're out of sync with what is true and we can name it and we confess it and we address it and we continue to move on. It's great opportunity for us. Just to be honest. Hold on to what is true. Be honest. Thirdly is to embrace love. Christians believe that truth and love are fused together and in that is hope. Truth and love are tethered together. If truth, if your truth does not look like love, then it's not truth. And if your love is not anchored in truth, then it's not real love. When Christ is truly present and working in your life, truth and love are never separated. They're never separate from one another because they're embodied in Christ himself. The gospel is the antidote to post-truth, post-facts post reality, our post-fact culture. And here's what I mean. The, uh, here's the posture of this. The object of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not to come in and say, we have truth like a sledgehammer and go, Plack, there you go, there, take that. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. We have a truth that is the anchor in the storms and the uncertainties of the realities of all of our broken lives. Yes, he is the one who we're tethered to. He is the one. We have a true truth, the only truth, and we tether to him. And so whatever comes, whatever storms, that it is well with my soul because I'm anchored in the true truth who is Jesus Christ. Love requires not only that we're anchored, that truth, it is both truth and love. So once we're anchored into the truth, then we can go be extravagant in our love with those who look radically different than us, those who believe radically different than us, those who have different struggles than we do. And we must go out to those who we must continue to show and embrace that love, the love of Jesus Christ, to those who are radically different than us. We need to get outside of our comfortable space. Because why? Because we're anchored in the truth. And so therefore, empowered by that truth, we go out and show that love. 
And then finally, we hope. All people, of all people, Christians should be the most hopeful. Hope comes, hope that comes from outside any system because it's from the person of Jesus Christ. Hope that is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that one day he will return. Guys, we're, we're just caught in the tension. We're caught into all that Christ has done, and then he will one day return. And so therefore, we endure suffer. We do endure suffering. We call it suffering. We name it for what it is. We deal with it, and yet we don't lose our hope because in the midst of suffering, Paul says, yet I'm rejoicing because Christ is going to come, and I just get these momentary afflictions, but one day he will come and make all of this right. And so therefore, you can be audacious in your hope, not because of what's going on, in the culture, but because of the hope that's in you, who is Christ. Christ is in you, the very hope of glory, and he will one day come. And so therefore, we can be tethered to that truth and therefore be radical and extravagant in our love and face the suffering, face the difficulty, face the challenge, name it for what it is, and yet still be steely-eyed in our hope for Christ because one day he will return. And therefore, we have great hope in our culture and in our world to be able to live out these realities and allow Jesus Christ to be the one thing that our life, our purpose is centered on. That we might grow in these things. That we might grow into maturity. That we might not be deceived. That we might bring praise and glory and honor to Christ as his body, which is the church. Love to dialogue more about these things because it's not going away. Yet our mandate doesn't change to honor Christ and to be obedient to him. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we have an anchor who is Christ, that we can be tethered to, to him, and that we all have a responsibility to be able to live out our faith right where you've put us. Will you help us to increase our passion and our desires? Father, we live in interesting times and interesting days. And I just ask that you will help us to continue to be faithful as your children until you return. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.